So we're in First Samuel three, uh, 1, and we read verses 3 to 18. And one of the core teachings of Scripture that is this, that God is sovereign over His creation. And because of that, that means that you were given life by God's divine decree. That is really amazing to think that the same God who created the stars, the universe, the vastness and the millions of different kinds of plants and animals and all that different thing, that He gave a personal decree for you to be born before the foundation of the world. He made you. It's a very personal thing. Because everything that happens to you is allowed by Him we, we need to take stock in, in these kind of truths. Psalm 84 verse number 11 says this, for the, the Lord God is a sun and shield and the Lord, uh, bestows favor and honor. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's the scripture talking about those who are upright, those who are believers, those who are um, in Christ. He says, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. But sometimes we question that, don't we? How is this thing good? Let me give you a lighthearted example of how I would question this. Uh, I, I like to lead mission trips, and uh, for many years we would go on mission trips to Poland. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm Lord willing, I would like to take a mission trip to Poland next year with people from this church. More will hopefully be forthcoming. But um, uh, one of the people that was going on the mission trip is is always um, causing me trouble, I guess would be the right word. And so I came up with a scheme. I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I called the missionary. And I said, do you know any police officers personally? And he said, yes. As a matter of fact, I know the chief of police in town. I said, can you get so-and-so arrested while we're in Poland? Because I want to get a picture of her in the back of the squad car. And plus, I wanted to see how traumatic it was for because, well, anyway. Right before we went over to Poland, he, he said, uh, Jared, it's not going to work. Uh, he's up for re-election. He doesn't want to have any kind of funny business that might hurt his election uh, chances. And I said, okay, I understand that. Fast forward to the end of the mission trip. We're coming back. We fly into Chicago. There's about a four-hour trip north to to where we live from Chicago. There's five of us. And as it would happen, the church van breaks down in one of the northern suburbs of Chicago. You know, church vans, it, it doesn't matter if they're brand new, they're going to break down, right? Well, one of those IDOT trucks pulled over that, that help you along the side of the road, and it was obvious that the van wasn't going to go anywhere. And he said, well, there's a, there's a rest stop, truck stop at the next exit up. He said, I can take four of you uh, there. And uh, they said, okay. Well, there happened to be a state police officer on scene, too. And he said, well, I can take the, the other one in my car. And I said, okay, you guys go in the truck, not thinking what was about to happen. I said, I'll, I'll ride with him. As we're walking to the car, he says, I can't let you in the front. You have to sit in the back. <laughs> I get in the back of the squad car. Guess who jumps out of the IDOT truck to get pictures? <laughs> At that moment, I'm thinking, God, if, if you're really a good God, how come my plan didn't go through? <laughs> But what it means, if you think about it, is that because God is sovereign and, and God is sovereign over the big events of history as well as the small things in your life, 
that your life is important to the larger context of God's work. It's interconnected. It's not just about your goals, your dreams, your desires, your your uh, family, your career, or anything like that. Instead, your life matters on a much larger scale than you can ever imagine. As history marches toward consummation, when the Lord comes back, what you do in this life is important. And remembering this, and remembering that you're part of the body, God has decreed before the world began that He was going to create you, and that you were going to have the opportunity to bring glory to Him by being an active part of Providence Bible Church or whatever church you happen to be a a member of. Do you believe that all things happen for your good? Do you? Do you believe that your participation in His body is important for the life of the church since we're a body together and every member is important? Do you really believe this? That's my major question. Do you believe that everything in life that happens is for your good. And a follow-up question to that that I want to address today as well is, if you believe this, how do you know you believe this? What evidence do you have in your life that you really believe this kind of a question? What is the proof? Well, we just read First Samuel chapter 1, part of it. And if you know the history, Israel was in very bad shape at this time. Just read the last few chapters of the book of Judges. All the horrific things that happened in those last chapters of Judges immediately precede First uh, Samuel chapter number 1. Basically, the Israelites have, have t- for all practical purposes, they've turned into Canaanites. The things have turned upside down in Israel during that time. Judges called of God gradually got more and more ineffective. As a matter of fact, by the time you get to Samson, the only person that Samson saved was himself. He only delivered himself, and that by suicide. Um, if, if we could have an, and so what ended up happening with the Israelites is they began to say, well, if we could only have an earthly king, then things would be fixed. And so they were looking on the horizontal plane instead of the vertical plane, weren't they? Is it any different in life today? If we could only have a Democrat in office, if we could only have a Republican in office, if we could only have a revolution, how did that work out for the French and the Russians, by the way, revolutions, or the Venezuelans? With all the chaos and upheaval in Israel, what God does is he, he focuses the narrative. He just zooms in on this woman named Hannah who was hopeless and helpless. But once again, God, who is going to, he's going to reach into the humdrum life of an ordinary person and intervene, impacting not just one family, but redirecting the entire course of human history. But Hannah didn't know this. And so her question, when you think about what she's doing, is why is this happening to me? You ever ask that question? Why is this happening to me? One commentator said, though, the answer is not found in the this or the me, for what God was doing was something far greater than her justifiable concern. The same thing happened in, in, in England. 
in the 17th and 18th century England, the 17th century of England, you would not have wanted to live through any part of it. It was, it was not good between religious wars, civil war, plague, continuous crop failures that accompanied all the, the little, the so-called little ice age. The mid 1600s were miserable in English history. And it was one of the most difficult times in the history of that country. And the answer to, to England's problems came in the birth of a couple different children. One of them was a Wesley. Two of them were Wesleys. One of them was a Whitfield and, and really changed the course of England for good for a while. You know, you may be in tough times and you, you may be asking yourself, I don't even know where I fit into God's big picture. Hannah believed that God was sovereign over her life and that she did fit into the big picture. And it's because she believed that, that she's actually in difficulty. She's thinking to herself, God, I know I fit into your, your big picture. I know that, that my life is important to you. I don't understand uh, how to get answers to my questions. If she had just believed in a random universe, then there would be no reason for her to even talk about purpose, would there? There's a random universe. There's no purpose for any of us. Just go out and do whatever you would like and and go have fun in life and don't worry about anything. But because she believed that there was a God in heaven who controls everything, she faces a predicament because she is childless. And instead of time being the great healer for her, as people often say, the longer time went along, the worse it gets for this dear lady. Verse number three tells us that her husband, this man, went up year by year and the passage of time made the events even more intolerable. If you read that section again that we read a while ago and you may be looking around today and you may be saying that this is this is my testimony. You maybe you're saying if if only this could have been stopped, if only this could have been resolved, if only this had happened And as far as you can see, there's no end in sight and there's no help coming from above. Am I speaking to anybody today? What I want to do is look through this passage and it kind of, it kind of comes like a movie almost. There's three distinct scenes and we're just going to look at them. Each is a paragraph. We're going to kind of answer some of these questions in verses three to eight. We see that uh, we're going to be talking about Shiloh. This Elkanah, her husband, is a pious man. He went to Shiloh year after year, meaning he was very pious. Not all Israelites went to Shiloh year after year, but he did. He was, he was an obscure man. Uh, he was not from any kind of a notable family or or anything like that. And in Shiloh is very important. Do you, do you know what's important about Shiloh? Shiloh is the site of where the tabernacle, remember the tabernacle they carried out of the wilderness? It stayed there for 369 years in one spot. If you look on this picture, if I have my laser pointer, you can see kind of a rectangle. You see it up there? I don't know if you can see the rectangle. Uh, there's a tent on the right-hand corner of the rectangle. Those are the remains of where the tabernacle sat uh, from a 14... 
06 BC to the time it was destroyed, which was right about the time of this narrative, actually. Uh, that's, that's where the tabernacle was. Now, what I want to do, the next picture is from down there looking up because it, I want to show you actually how steep that hill is. Now that is Shiloh, the town, Shiloh. That is the location of the temple. The temple is right on the side of Shiloh. And what's interesting about it, can I go into a little bit of geography real quick because it's really fascinating. The place of the tabernacle is just like the place of the temple in Jerusalem. If you've been there, all the mountains around the temple mount are taller than it, aren't they? They all are. Same thing is true of Shiloh, and it's for a very distinct purpose. God is not a God who is so high that we can't see him. God is the kind of God that the common man can see. And it's very important that you understand that. This, these pictures were taken in 2012. This next picture was taken in 2014. Look what they did to the top. Now, what you must realize is that there are about 2,000 years of civilization, layer after layer after layer, under that building. Since then, I haven't taken any recent pictures. They have um, the the Shiloh. They've done more excavating, and you can see different different Iron Age, Bronze Age, and all that sort of stuff. They're really fascinating. But I want to show you something in the wall. Remember the rectangle I showed you? Can anybody tell me what this is? This is in the rectangular wall. This is how we know it's a t- one of the reasons we know this is a religious site. That is a little olive press. You take your olives, you press it in there, and then you get it out, the oil out of it, and you use it as an offering to the Lord. It's an offering press. You might know what this is. That's a wine press. You, the, there's actually a tunnel under that, that rectangle. See, see the, uh, up at the top of the picture, see that other basin? They would press the wines in the one, wine in the one, it'd run into the other, and they would give a wine offering to the Lord at that time as well. And so it's, it's a religious site. I don't know if that's interesting to you. I just thought it was interesting that Shiloh, Shiloh is one of the most important sites um, in Israel's history, because when you go to the predictions of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, Isaiah said that Jerusalem will become like Shiloh because of how corrupt it was. Now, if you remember Eli's sons, how corrupt they were, it was not too long after that, Shiloh was burnt down to the ground and it's never been occupied since. And God's, God's predictions came true there. But anyway, Shiloh was very important for years. And f- the fact that Hannah had no children was the problem. So on the surface, it would seem like going to Shiloh would be a perfect time to get her life in order. You can imagine somebody coming to her and saying, hey, don't you think for just at least a little bit you can quit thinking about yourself and, and give your attention to God? Could you see somebody, some well-meaning person saying that to her as she's going to Shiloh? That would be the wrong thing to say, wouldn't it? Hannah's going to Shiloh and it's just exacerbating things. Elkanah, her husband, took Hannah as his wife first. She was the first wife. Apparently, when it when it was um, apparent that she could not have children, he took Penina, 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 his as his wife, and he got something that he wanted from her, which was what children. He got children from her. 
But he also got what he didn't want, and that was he got a divided household. Verses 4 and 5 highlight Elkanah's giving portions for the yearly sacrifice, but this practice heightened the tensions in the family. You read, you read these verses and you see that, that he, he gave portions to uh, Penina and to her sons and daughters, and then whatever he gave them, he gave a double portion to Hannah, indicating that he really loved Hannah. Maybe he didn't love Penina as much or even at all. Hannah didn't have any children. And it's obvious that he was a good guy who's thinking about, thinking of what he's doing is a good thing. And in reality, he's just compounding the problem. Have you ever met, have you ever been in that situation? Somebody come to you, they either say something they think is going to be a good thing, or they do something they think is going to be a good thing. And all they're doing in their, in their good intentions is compounding the problem. That's what's going on here. The Bible understands that God understood that. That's why he had this narrative like this. Penina, looking on, says to Alcana, I know you love her more than me. I mean, it was very obvious he loved uh, Hannah more. Then turning to her rival, she basically said to her rival, What do you have to thank God for? You got nothing. God's closed your womb. Surely he's forgotten you. I can imagine these exact things being said to her, couldn't you? How cruel, how intolerable that is. The psalmist uses these same uh, words in Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You ever felt like that? That's a psalmist being real about how he feels about life. And so, Penina becomes the catalyst for all this conflict and aggravation. Verse number 7, look at what it says. Can you, can you feel it? And so it went on year by year. Lord, I've been putting up with this for so long. Lord, this has been such a hard time for me. Are you listening? Have you forgotten me, Lord? Because year after year, I pray about whatever it is. And it seems like you're not answering. I know I'm speaking to people who've had that exact same kind of prayer at one time or another. Can you imagine dealing with this year after year? For 10, 20 years. This is a condition at that time that is not going to be resolved. I am sure that there was a feeling of complete helplessness with Hannah. But Elkanah knew something, her husband. He knew this. He knew that all things that come our way and all things that do not come our way are directly from the Father's hands. Think with me about that. Read that one more time. All things that come your way and all things that do not come your way, whether you judge them to be good or bad, they are directly from the Father's hands. Hannah knew that as well. And she's having a hard time allowing her heart to catch up with what she knew up here. I think that's a basic human condition, isn't it? Knowing up here during hard times is sometimes very difficult 
for your heart to catch up with what your head already knows. She knew that she served a God who was interested in the affliction of her people. How how does she know that? Because she's got the Pentateuch. When God heard the affliction of the Israelites, she knew that he was a God who would not forget his own. She knew this, but at the same time, she had a hard time um, reconciling the apparent contradiction because it just seems like it, doesn't it? This may be exactly where you are in your spiritual pilgrimage. You're waiting for your emotions to be brought under the control of what you know to be true about God. Notice Elkanah in verse number 8. We could subtitle this, Stupid Things That Husbands Say. (laughs) Verse number 8, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart so sad? And that's bad enough, isn't it? To say that, why, why? And then he goes, then he has to say it, doesn't he? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I could think of a, a few thing, few answers that would not be so nice to respond to that. Can you get on the camel and start riding that way? And but um, now, what would your response to that question be? Are you serious, Elkanah? I can't even believe you asked that. Why do you even need to ask that question? How is that helping the situation? His question, I want you to think about the question for just a minute. His question, am I not more to you than ten sons, reveals something. He's saying, am I not sufficient? But I think it reveals a little bit more. A couple of commentators brought this out this week. I think that in asking that question that way, he is revealing his true desire to have sons as well. And it was almost like a dagger in her heart. Because by asking that question, Elkanah revealed that he longed for the one thing that they couldn't have together. A better way of wording that question, listen to this, wouldn't this have been better if he looked at her and said, are you not more to me than ten sons, Hannah? Now, the next paragraph, uh, we're going into the tabernacle now. Verses 9 to 11. Hannah has, has removed herself from Elkanah, her husband, who has questions, and she places herself in the presence of the one who has answers. It's kind of like asking the question of the psalmist in Psalm 73. Truly, is God good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart? But as for me, my feet almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. In other words, I know you're a good God and you look after all your people, but what about me? Then he goes on to talk about his disorientation, as the psalmist does in Psalm 73, and, and, and how he begins to envy the wicked and their prosperity. He goes on to describe the prosperity of the wicked, but he comes back around. I want you to see this answer. In verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 73, this is how he finishes. He says, but when I thought to how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Hannah was in the place where she could find answers, and that place is in the presence of God. 
This is exactly what she does. How does she arrive to the sanctuary? She arrives in deep distress, deep heartache, bitter tears, anxiety and affliction. I mean, these are all things to describe what's going on. She's probably saying, dear God, I love you and you know me, but my husband, he doesn't get it. Did you notice that in her response, in her prayer, there's no attempt or even desire to destroy or remove Penina? Did you notice that? There's no imprecatory prayer towards her. There's no, can you just go ahead and remove her from the scene? There's not any sense of her being resentful towards God. Neither is she fatalistic saying, well, this is the way it's going to be. I guess I'll just have to deal with it. Instead, she's bringing all of her causes for sorrow into the presence of God, and she's seeking to bring her life underneath God's jurisdiction. He is a God who is too wise to make mistakes, and He's too kind to ever be cruel. And can I, can I say something to you? When you are in the midst of difficult providences, Whatever they happen to be. Remember, God is too wise to make mistakes. And He is too kind to ever be cruel. That's not the God that we serve. I can say from decades of ministry that there's not a Sunday that goes by that in the seats in front of me, there's not life after life after life after life who have this kind of testimony. Seated right in front of me. The stories are go something like this. We prayed, and the tears just kept flowing. We prayed, and our distress just kept coming. It's not a prosperity gospel message. Hey, we prayed, and the, prayer, the tears stopped. Hey, we prayed, and all is good with life. Life is not the prosperity gospel, is it? We prayed, and the tears kept flowing. There's no simple solution to my circumstances. And many of us will go through this all the day, all our days dealing with circumstances like this. But this makes verse number 11, look at verse number 11, it makes it very remarkable. Notice what she did. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, But I will give to your servant a son, and I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now on the surface, what does this look like to you? Looks like she's trying to bargain with God, doesn't it? You know, God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. We all all have tried to bargain one time or another, haven't we? Doesn't work out so well. I don't think I've ever had one bargain I've given to the God actually actually come true. Maybe there has been, I can't remember. But is she trying to bargain with God? I don't think so. I think what she's doing instead is that she is is worshiping. And she's saying, Lord, I am a nothing and a nobody. And I'm asking you to do what you've done for all your servants in the past. It is God's love in the past. Remember, she has the Scriptures. She sees the stories of God's love in the past. And it's His love in the past that allows her to pray boldly as she does today. 
And you see, it's because in answering her prayer, God was not just answering the prayer of an insignificant woman in an insignificant family, but He is answering the prayers of a nation. Moving in a way that is vastly greater than her own ability to grasp. And so as you pray to God, and you're in the midst of your difficulty, don't try to bargain with God. But pray in faith to God. Worship Him, knowing that He's a God that's too good to be cruel and too wise to make a mistake. Knowing that He is the one who's a sun and a shield, and no good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. And worship that God and say, God, I know I'm part of a larger picture. And this is my problem right now. If you would answer this, this would be great. But if not, Lord, I'm going to worship you because I know that you're using me for your glory in a greater and bigger way. And for us, most likely, it'll only be on the realms of glory that we'll be able to make sense of the web of events in our lives. It's true for Job, right? Job had no idea the, the crazy things that went on in his life. But he knew in glory, and we know because of Scripture. Notice something else about her. Her request was not a selfish request. What did she, uh, what was she willing to do? She's willing to give it up. It wasn't a selfish request that she was asking. I want a son for me. No, her request is, I want a son for you, Lord, and I'll give him to you. He'll have a Nazarite vow, and he'll be in the temple all the days of his life. Now, whether or not, God had answered her prayer, I think she would have gone that day forward worshiping. And that's what we're going to see next. Look at verses 12 to 18. You'll notice that in verse number 12, uh, even though she's saying all these things, her lips are moving, but there's no words coming out from her. There, why? why? Why would there be no words coming out? Because these words are from her heart. They're heart prayers, aren't they? These are from the depths of her heart. Eli's watching her. Now, Eli is, if it's a fascinating study, if you study Eli, eyesight is a major part of Eli. Every time he's mentioned, there's something about his not being able to see, his mistaken eyesight or whatever else. And his physical eyesight is a picture of the spiritual reality that he is spiritually blind. Chapter 2, verse number 12 of 1 Samuel says that his sons were worthless. They did not know the Lord. You could go on and read the horrible things that they were doing in the temple. But Eli, were, his eyes were dim, and his spiritual perception was also dim. And so what does he do? He cannot discern the difference between a prayer from the heart and a drunken person. That's, that's how spiritually dim Eli had, had become. Whether his blessing is a word from the Lord or his way of consoling him, we don't know. But if you consider how God characterizes Eli, when he said, may the Lord answer your prayer, I, I don't believe that he was as sincere as some people may believe. I think he was just kind of saying, okay, well, I made a mistake. May the Lord bless you and move on from here. I think literally that's, that's what he's doing. I think she could probably see that as well. But notice what happens. She brought her grief to the Lord, and before it is answered in one way or another, her appetite has returned, and her countenance has changed. 
The way this is written points to the fact that the resolution didn't come to her in pregnancy nor in giving birth. The resolution came in that she was able to pour out her heart to the Lord and she worshiped the Lord. She didn't have an answer from the Lord yet, did she? She didn't know if he was going to answer her prayer in the, in the affirmative. But when she walked away from the, the tabernacle that day, she had changed. I'm going to talk in just a minute about what I think that change was. But in 1 Peter 5, 7, I think she had that kind of a moment. 1 Peter 5, 7, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time He may exalt you. Doing what? Casting all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Don't carry your anxieties. Give them to the Lord. And it was when she, in the sanctuary, cast her burdens on the Lord that she received peace and her countenance had changed. And it's in these moments when we don't understand that we can pray, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, and I don't know why you're doing it, but I know that this comes from your hand. And it's good. Maybe not in this life good, but it's good for eternity. All of us have times when we need to do this. Let's go back to Psalm 84, verses 11, or verse number 11. Let's read this together. For the Lord God is the sun and the shield, and the Lord bestows favor and honor, and it says, no good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Do you really believe that? What's going on in your life where you say, well, if this is good from the Lord, I, I can't even comprehend how this is good. If, God, if this is what God's goodness looks like, I'm not sure if I want any part of it. Maybe, maybe your heart is a little bit different. You're saying, Lord, please help in this for there to be some good to come out of it. I don't, I don't know what your, your frame of reference is. But God will not withhold anything good from those who walk uprightly. Now let me ask you a question. Do you believe that? Remember my first question, do you believe that? A lot of people are shaking their heads yes. Here's my second question. How? How do you know that you believe that? What is the proof? Let me, let me give you a proof. I don't know where you are. But maybe you're in a trial and you're thinking to yourself, I don't see how any of this is good, and you're just confused as could be. If God were to come to you in person, and He were to look at you and say something to the effect of this, can you thank me for the testing that you're going through, even if you don't know why you're going through it? If you can do that, if you can ever get to where you can say, yes, God, I trust you, even though I don't know why I'm going through this. That's the proof. That's the proof. And you know what? When you can answer that with a yes, you will walk through life with a peace that you have never comprehended before. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what's going on. I just know from decades of pastoral ministry that any good percentage of people in a congregation are going through painful things in life that cause them to be almost like spiritually disoriented. I don't know what they are. And you're, you're asking all kinds of why questions. I urge you, I urge you 
to trust God, knowing that He does not withhold anything good from those who walk uprightly. You know what? For most of us in these situations, the good is only going to be seen in eternity. It's not going to be seen down here on earth. What makes that part of it great? Because it's the eternal reward. It never fades. Any good that we get here on earth, it's gone when earth is over, isn't it? When our life is over. And so the good things that God gives us are in eternity. No good thing. And you're saying, God, I don't know how on earth this can be good, but I'm going to trust you and I'm going to worship you and I'm going to glorify you to the best of my ability. Can you do that today? If you can, then these truths have gone from your head to your heart. And that's what God wants all of us to be. Lord, thank you for your scripture. What, what, a, what a tender passage this is. What a, a precious woman in this narrative. And what a great God you are. I have no idea what people are going through today. I do know a number of people going through trials. I just ask, Lord, that you will sustain them. Your grace will be upon them. Help them, Lord to grasp this not only in their head, but also in their heart. And those who are believers in Christ, who are in the body together with them, help us to encourage them, counsel them, and pray for them faithfully, Lord, so that in glory we can say together, that was a difficult time, but my, what good came out of it. Because you're a God who decreed us to have life. You saved us individually. And you saved us into a body who is marching towards the consummation of, of the world and time. And we get to be part of that great event. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.